Welcome to Timeless Truth with Pastor Jim Thomas, a resource of the Village Chapel in Nashville, Tennessee. This week we're finishing up our current season and we'll return after the Christmas holiday to continue our study of the Gospel of Mark. Also, don't forget that on Monday, December 4th, we'll begin the first season of our new podcast, Creative Thinking with Kim Thomas. You can subscribe today in your favorite podcast app. But now, this week, as we continue the Gospel of Mark, here's Pastor Jim. So as Jesus and Peter, James, and John all come back down off the Mount of Transfiguration, they're talking, they're chatting. I'm sure Peter, James, and John are asking them how well Jesus knew Moses and Elijah, et cetera, et cetera. And they approach the other nine disciples and the crowd, the multitude that have gathered around them. And here's what happens. There's, there's a bit of a debate going on, a bit of a heated argument, if you will. It says in verse 14 of Mark chapter 9, when they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and um, some scribes arguing with them. Now, the scribes, remember, these are the experts in the law. They're the ones that actually made the manuscript copies of the Old Testament. And so they knew it inside and out. And so when you think you've got the PhD and you're the one that's the smartest guy in the room or the smartest guy out on the field there standing near these disciples and you're arguing with them. And we already know, we already know that they were sort of at odds with Jesus all the way back in chapter three of Mark. uh, We were told there that the scribes were seeking to destroy Jesus. So these, quote, good religious, end quote, folk have murder on their minds and everywhere Jesus goes, they're following along trying to discredit him or in some cases to destroy him. Here they're arguing with the other nine disciples, Peter, James, John, and Jesus coming down off the mountain after this amazing experience. And immediately when uh, the entire crowd saw him, meaning Jesus, they were amazed and they began running up to greet him. I would too. And if I saw him and I knew it was him, I would run to him. That's a great thing to do. He asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my possessed, or I brought you my son possessed with a spirit, which makes him mute. So he, he can't speak. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. He's having this horrible seizure experience. Uh, And the man goes on to say, and I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. So the argument may have been over that. I don't know. The scribes might have been saying, what's with you nine? How come you can't do anything? And, um, And that might have caused quite a Quite a bit of upset. Who knows? Bartholomew must say, Levi, let me take, get out of the way. Let me take this one. I got this one and yelled and screamed and hollered all kinds of things and at the demon that was uh, possessing this young man uh, and had done everything they could, but nothing was working is the point. And so the father, who is so desperate, loves his son so much, sees Jesus, runs straight to him and explains the situation and says that Jesus, your disciples couldn't do this. And uh, he's desperate. He wants, he wants help for his son. Well, verse 19, Jesus answered them and said, oh, unbelieving generation. Interesting that the question, the situation was described by the man. Jesus answers the crowd. And I love this. He says, oh, believing, oh, unbelieving generation. This is interesting. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? 
And then he says these amazing four words, bring him to me. What must that father have thought just in that moment to hear Jesus say, bring him to me after who knows how long the debate lasted? Who knows how early in the day they had the father and the son had shown up to where the disciples were hoping to see Jesus, but he's gone off onto the mountainside with Peter, James, and John. So the nine disciples who have already been out on mission, who've already done some pretty amazing things, including casting out demons. And this father isn't being helped. This son isn't being helped by the nine disciples. And who knows what kind of argument was going on between the scribes and the disciples at that point as they seek to discredit Jesus. Certainly they're seeking to discredit his disciples and his followers. And so there's this dust up, this argument. And yet Jesus says, bring him to me. I love this. Verse 20. And they brought the boy to him. And when he saw him, when the boy saw Jesus, immediately the spirit threw the boy into a convulsion and following to the ground, falling to the ground, he began rolling about and foaming at the mouth. I mean, this just seems to be getting worse and worse and worse. It's quite dramatic right now. Jesus asked the father, verse 21, how long has it has this been happening to him? And I, you know, again, I'll make the argument that I think Jesus already knows the answer to this question, but he wants us to know how significant this miracle is that he's about to perform. And the father says it's been happening to him from his childhood. I can't, I can't even begin to imagine um, the torture, the torment in this father's heart on behalf of his child, his son, whom he loved so dearly. Um, and here, just hoping and praying, after trying all kinds of different things, I'm certain of it, he now finally thinks he's found the answer, but Jesus is up on the mountain somewhere. And the nine disciples, well, maybe maybe they can help. Well, they can't help at all. And then the argument starts. And the father just probably just reduced to weeping, frustration, despair, whatever, until there's a little cluster of four people coming down the mountain. And sure enough, it's Jesus. And he runs up to him and tells him what's going on. And and Jesus wants the boy to be brought there. So um, Jesus talking to the father, how long has this been happening since childhood? And the father goes on in verse 22 and says, it often throws him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him, to either burn him alive or drown him to death. Um, and then the father says this really interesting thing that I... I think you'll be familiar with a lot of us pray like this, don't we? But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. See, so many of our prayers get reduced to just a, a couple of words sometimes, don't they? Just help us, help. Um, some of our other prayers, more positive prayers, can be summarized in the words, thank you. But more often than not, most of us are praying, help, Lord, help me. And so this father is doing that as well. Jesus then res responds to him. This is fascinating. Verse 23, if you can, it's almost like he's a little 
puzzled by the question. All things are possible, he says, to him who believes. And this is quite well known as a verse and as a statement of Jesus. If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Verse 24, immediately, one of Mark's immediately's here, the boy's father cried out and began saying, I do believe, help my unbelief. Remember, the boy has been thrashing about on the ground, foaming at the mouth um, uh, in a convulsion or seizure-like state. And now the father is, you know, the father is saying, I do believe, help my unbelief. And I don't know about you, but I mean, this, this very exact response of this father to Jesus is a great description of so often of my prayers, an admixture of belief and unbelief of, I believe you can, I hope you will. Um, and, and that's so true because none of us uh, know or can predict exactly what God's going to do. We, we don't know what God knows. We, we, we aren't as smart as God about everything. We don't know what will result in his greatest glory. We don't even know what will result in our highest good or the highest good of someone that we love. We think we know. We often pray and even offer up some counsel and advice to the God of the universe on how to go about fixing something or solving something. Um, and and in, in, in not only what method to use in doing it, but when to do it, all that sort of thing. No, not, that's not trusting God to be sovereign at all. Um, Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible. The, boy, the, fa- the boy's father says, um, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, and so he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. Now, this is an amazing moment as Jesus once again, um, just with his words, shows that he has authority and power over the demon uh, and the dark forces um, that might have this poor boy in such horrible shape. So he says, uh, he says to him, uh, you come out of him, I command you come out of him, do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing the boy into terrible convulsions, it came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said he is dead. And uh, that's remarkable as well. The boy stops convulsing. The seizure seems to stop and the convulsions stop and his apparently lifeless body just lays there. He's not saying anything. His eyes aren't open. He looks like he's dead. And remember, the people of this time knew what dead looks like better than most of us look what, know what dead looks like. They were firsthand uh, eyewitnesses to death all the time and most of us are not. Well, Jesus took the boy by the hand and raised him up. I love that. And the boy got up. Okay, so Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. And uh, Luke's version of this says, and everyone was amazed at the, the, the glory of God or the goodness of God there. And that's just so true. When we see God at work, when we recognize uh, something that it's, 
it can only be explained by the power of God. And that's what the miracles of Jesus are ultimately all about. Um, I, I've said it so many times. I'll continue to say it, though. I think it's important for us to remember. It's not just sensational entertainment. Um, they are designed to arouse curiosity about Jesus. They're designed to display his authority. They're designed to reveal his compassion. They're designed to affirm his identity as the son of God. Uh, if he could do, if he's the son of God, really, he could do these kinds of things. You would think so, you know. And fifthly, he's, uh, his miracles are all designed uh, to inspire worship, which is what he created us for in the first place, to worship, not just anything, but to worship God. Well, so the crowd is standing there. They're thinking he's dead. Jesus shows him what a great reversal artist he is. He takes the boy by the hand, raises him up. The boy got up. And when he had come into the house, Jesus had come into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why is it that we could not cast it out? And Jesus responded to the disciples, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. And so um, whether uh, the disciples were just trying to scream the demon out, and I think sometimes we get caught up in some of that kind of method miracle uh, stuff, you know, swinging a coat, yelling and screaming and hollering and spitting and all that sort of thing. There's no, there's no reason to do that at all. If you're actually trusting God for the outcome, you can pray with confidence in Jesus' name. Demons aren't afraid of us because we we yelled or because we spit or we strutted or any of that sort of thing. It's the name of Jesus. That's where the power is. Um, and so that's very important for us. Right, what, what, do we, what do we learn? There's a few things real quick. Uh, one, just on a big picture, when you read this story, uh, the path of Christian discipleship includes both mountaintop experiences and valley experiences. And I think that's important for us. This, this is literally happening for especially Peter, James, and John. They're up the mountain with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, but they're also down in the valley. And sometimes, you know, we, we, we all like to get away. We all like to take a retreat. We all like to, when I was a kid, I used to go away to summer camp all the time. And we, you know, at the end of the week, we all just kind of arm in arm, back and forth, singing, we are the church. We are the people of God, you know, and you're just all caught up in the euphoria of the whole thing. And it's wonderful. But then you go back home and all your old friends expect the old you, not the new you, if there's a new you. And um, so it's back to the valley where sort of the rough and tumble bit of life is. And Christian discipleship, it involves both. Well, yes, there are wonderful mountaintop experiences with Jesus, uh, but there are also valley experiences. And we need to just know that and be honest about that as we talk about what it means to follow Jesus. Secondly, acknowledging our weakness and, and our inadequacy is uh, the beginning of, of real faith. And we see that here in this father who has this son who's demon-possessed and can't speak. And the, the, the demon that has him uh, under its grip is destroying him. It's a very self-destructive situation. And this father's heart is broken. Uh, he's tried so many different things, including coming to the disciples of Jesus, but they could not help him. And he's, he's so frustrated. He's so exhausted. Um, he's so desperate. And as we've said before, um, we, when we're desperate, the kingdom of heaven draws near. It's like a magnet to the heart of the Lord. Tim Keller says in Counterfeit Gods, if you want God's grace, all you need is need. All you need is 
nothing. See, God's grace, it's on offer as a free gift to you, as a free gift to me. Let's turn to Jesus like this father did. And even with his faith not being complete, even with his admixture of, you know, uh, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. You know, he knows he's completely dependent on the Lord. And acknowledging our weakness and inadequacy is the beginning of faith. Have you done that? Whatever you're going through, whatever you're experiencing, are you are you prepared to humble yourself before the Lord and acknowledge your weakness and your inadequacy? Thirdly, when all human hopes have failed, there yet arises um, great hope for all of those who turn to and trust in Christ. And that happened here, yeah. Um, the guy tried everything, even tried Jesus' disciples, wasn't getting any help. Maybe you've tried everything. Maybe you've even tried the disciples, the, the church, if you will, okay? And still nothing. But have you turned to Jesus himself? Have you actually cast all your cares upon him? Um, there should rise within us great hope. Why? Because of the one we turn to. It's Jesus And we have to remind ourselves over and over again of how great he is. He doesn't just point out the way. He is the way. He doesn't just point to the truth. He is the truth. John Lennox, the Christian apologist, the Oxford mathematician on a worldwide uh, scale. I mean, the guy guy is is just brilliant. Um, uh, Has become a friend to a bunch of us at the village chapel because his his niece happens to attend our church. But uh, John Lennox once said, what convinces me, and he's talking about what convinces me about Jesus, about the Christian faith, about the Christian gospel, what convinces me, he sent more than fire from heaven. He's talking about God here. God sent more than fire from heaven. He himself came from heaven in Christ. Yeah, John Lennox. And that's exactly what this father in the text we just read discovered as well. That when he turned to Jesus, directly to Jesus, there he found the hope that he really needed and the help that he really needed. Fourthly, sometimes things get worse before they can get better. We, we see this even in this encounter, and that, that's true. Sometimes things will take a step back before they can take a step or two forward. Um, and and this, this is one of those kind of miracles that displays that kind of thing. When uh, they bring the boy before Jesus and the demons within the boy or the demon within the boy sees Jesus, immediately it threw the boy down onto the ground into a convulsion. And he began rolling about and foaming at the mouth. All of this is verse 20. And then even, even as Jesus says, come out of him, verse 25. Uh, in verse 26, after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, um, the demon came out and the boy began so much like a corpse, everybody thought he was dead. And so again, you, you kind of see this, don't you? That sometimes things appear to be getting worse, even though they might be on the way to getting better. And I think it's important for all of us to understand that too. Even on a grand scale, on a eschatological scale, we can say uh, with certainty 
that one day God intends to, as the great reversal artist that he is, to set everything right. And between now and then, there will be many things that will happen that won't go the way we hoped they would um, or the way we planned for them to. And yet we still believe. And when our faith is weak, we lift up the empty hands of faith and we say, Lord, I believe help my unbelief just like this father did. And what we are saying is that we trust God with the ultimate outcome that even if we should die, even if that boy had died, we still trust the Lord with the final outcome, the ultimate outcome. Sometimes along the way, it'll appear that things get worse before they get better. And even on an eschatological level, that's true. The end times will be dark times, but the end times will come to an end. And then there will be the eternal reign of Jesus Christ, the new heavens, the new earth that comes down, descends, and we have everything set right by the Lord in this beautiful vision that we have of eternity, um, uh, worshiping before the throne, feasting at the table of the Lamb. Fifthly, and finally, the object of your faith is always more important than the amount of your faith. And we see that in this Father as well. When we look at the triune God, the true God, and we wait on him, we find that when there's mounting up to be done, we can do it with eagle's wings. This is N.T. Wright, so brilliant, in his book, Small Faith, Great God. And he's basically saying this. Um, when, when, let me start back at the beginning of that quote. When we, when we look at the true God and wait on him, we find that when there's mounting up to be done, we can do it with eagle's wings. When there is running to be done, we can do it without weariness. And when there's walking to be done, we can do it worthy of the Lord without fainting. See, we walk with the Lord. We walk with our Savior. We're following him. He's the one that called us to himself. And he said, along the way, you will deny yourself. You'll take up your cross and you'll follow me. Okay, so that was the fifth point. And I'm going to give you just a bonus point, which is the spiritual disciplines like prayer, because that last little verse when the disciples come in and say, Jesus, how come we couldn't do it? How come we couldn't cast that out? Jesus said to him, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. So this is kind of the bonus little uh, 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 maybe point, if you, if you want to call this a mini sermon anyway. But spiritual disciplines like prayer and fasting, um, they help us focus on the greatness and the grace of our God, the greatness of our God and on the grace of our God. Karl Barth, the probably one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century, said to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. And so these disciples, there they are. Why is it that we couldn't cast it out? And Jesus replies that this kind cannot come out um, uh, by anything but prayer. Karl Barth, following up, talking about prayer, says it's like the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. I think that's so beautifully said, so well said. And one of my other favorites that most of you know, John Stott, said praying 
is not like using a coin-operated machine or a cash dispenser. The struggle involved in prayer lies in the process of coming to discern God's will and to desire it above everything else. That is, we want God's will. We're committed to God's will. Not my will, but thine be done, Jesus prayed. And we pray in faith, believing that exact same prayer that Jesus prayed. Stott goes on to say, then God will work things out providentially according to his will, for which we have prayed. That's right. We want God's will, not just our will. Prayer is a request. Um, God is good. God is all-powerful. God is good all the time. Um, God knows more than we do what will result in his greatest glory and our highest good. We can trust God with all the outcomes, large and small. Let me close us in prayer today. Thank you, Lord, for this. Increase our faith. I pray that you would grant to us uh, the gift of faith. Uh, Lord, may we walk in the grace, the, the, the lavish amount of grace that you've poured, all, poured out all over us and all around us, Lord. May we rest uh, in your love for us. May we turn to you, um, first and foremost, with our cries for mercy, our cries for help. Oh, and Lord, stir within us that beautiful, wonderful, handsome habit of heart of gratitude as well, that our prayers might be thank you and thank you and thank you and thank you over and over and over again, Lord. And may that, um, uh, for this day anyway, be the way we both start and end our day. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. God bless you. Read ahead. Thanks for listening to today's study. Take a moment to leave a review and share this episode with friends and family. You can stay connected by signing up for our newsletter or follow us on social media. At the Village Chapel, we believe God's word is unique in its source, timeless in its truth, broad in its reach, and transforming in its power. For more resources or to support our ministry, visit our website, thevillagechapel.com.